for today, Genesis 4, and we'll begin in verse 1. Genesis 4, pretty easy to find. As you turn there, let me just make a comment or two. Genesis chapter 1 is about creation. Genesis chapter 2 and 3 gives us an account of the lives of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And from Genesis 4 on, throughout the rest of the Bible, we see the human condition outside the Garden of Eden. So we're making quite a departure from what we've read here in Genesis 4. And it is not a pretty picture. Uh, And the design of it all is to show us the encroaching, corrupting, increasingly irreversible effects of human sin. Adam and Eve committing the first, it being passed on generation to generation. And we get a picture, and I must tell you it's not a pretty picture, of the corrupting effects of sin on in individual lives, marriages, relationships, family, society, nations, and the world. All of it makes you think, oh God, we need a Savior. And by the way, that's the design of the book. Here's what we look like, God says. Here's your condition. Here's your problem. I'm here to solve it. Would you let me? So that's kind of what's going to happen as we begin now in Genesis chapter 4. Take a look. Now the man, what's his name? There you go. Had relations with his wife Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Uh, The word Cain means begotten or acquired. So his name is actually a play on words. It means acquired because Eve gave credit to God. She said, I acquired him. I got him with the help of the Lord. Therefore, I will name his name Cain. And I'm speculating here, but I'm just wondering if this mom was imagining her son, Cain, to be the promised one. And who is the promised one? We know that. But at the time, they did not. They just knew of the coming of a promised one. By the way, we got a cute little baby here. Christina, how old is this little baby? Seven weeks. Congratulations. I knew that kid when she was a baby. And now she has a baby. Wonderful, wonderful. Good church attendance. Not bad. Um, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you'll see the first promise of hope (laughs) uh, that our sin condition can be reversed and dealt with. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is a very key verse. Take a look at it. Uh, God speaking and saying, I'll put enmity between you. The you is actually Satan in the form of the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed is going to be Jesus. I'm reading that into it, aren't I? Because I'm reading the Old Testament through New Testament eyes. I'll put enmity between your seed, Satan, and her seed. He, the seed of the woman, who we know to be Jesus, he shall bruise you on the head. Know what that means? It's a mortal wound. 
It's a forever wound. He, Jesus, the seed of the woman, will inflict a mortal wound on you. It's a head wound. You shall bruise him on the heel. That's the crucifixion. That hurt. That was excruciating suffering. But up from the grave he arose. The resurrection shows us Satan could not inflict a mortal wound. But there will come a day when the seed of the woman sentences Satan to the lake of fire throughout eternity. So Genesis 3.15 is considered to be the first messianic promise in the Bible. The word messianic means pertaining to the Messiah. Because part of the biblical record is to help any thinking person identify who the Messiah is. So you start literally with a world of possibilities. Many who have the potential to be on the throne. But then God, and you'll see this in particular in Genesis, narrows down out of the entire human race the line of Messiah. So that any thinking person is not mistaken in concluding it's Jesus. So you're going to see God starts out. I can't separate my arm this far. You won't hear me, but yeah, for a little while. That's the human race. And in Genesis, we see it narrowing down. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, on and on and on. Until we run smack dab into one, Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody else could be the Messiah. It's not a blind leap from logic to faith. It's a very logical conclusion we come to. So Genesis 3.15, a messianic promise. Eve knew what it was about. And I wonder if she was thinking, oh, God has birthed a child in me. I wonder if this one is the promised seed spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. She would have loved to be the one who birthed the Savior of the world. Sadly, she soon is going to find out that it's not Cain. But I wonder if she was thinking about all this at this point. And so in verse 2, again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. We don't know the time gap. We don't know if it was years or a year between the birth of elder brother Cain, younger brother Abel. The text doesn't tell us that. But she gave birth to another Abel. But this time she named him Breath or Vapor. I wonder if she was disappointed in finding out that her first son Cain was actually not the promised savior of the world. And therefore, I wonder if she decided, you know, any baby, though we love the baby and all the rest, is just a breath, just a vapor. All of us are just mere mortals. Uh, my sons do not really qualify to be the savior of the world. We have to look elsewhere. So she names him breath or vapor, and the text tells us that they find themselves in different vocations. Abel was a keeper of the flocks, and uh, he was a shepherd. Cain, a tiller of the soil. He was a farmer. There's no morality or lack of it attached to either chosen profession. Both are legitimate and both are necessary. And both reveal something contrary to the theory of evolution. <laughs> Evolutionary theory essentially says that at the beginning, humankind was rather simple, mind-dead. And intelligence is an evolutionary thing, as are all things. So first man started out being rather simple, not very bright. That's the theory of evolution. I mean, we're just a smidgen away from animals. We're, we're simpletons. Uh, 
And through evolutionary processes, survival of the fittest, natural selection, the best was given rise to, and we come to be PhDs and all the rest. But this text flies in the face of the, uh, of the theory of evolution, because right at the beginning, <laughs> the picture emerging from the Bible shows us that first men engaged themselves in rather advanced tasks such as soil cultivation and animal husbandry and domestication. I mean, you can go to, you can go to Texas A&M now and get degrees in these things. These are not simpletons. They are not one step away from apes. I'm telling you, the theory of evolution must remain just a theory. And it's not a good theory. It doesn't explain how first man was able to accomplish what he did. So they were engaged in these tasks. And here's what happened, verse 3. It came about in the course of time. Cain brought an offering to the Lord. So I ask you, where did he come up with that idea? Later on in biblical history, rendering offerings to God will be mandated and regulated through the law of Moses. You read about it in the book of Leviticus. But that's hundreds of years beyond this point. Where did Cain get the notion of making an offering to the Lord? What's your thinking? Yes, ma'am. That is a great response. Uh, our sister said, God has put in our hearts an inclination and need to worship him. You are right. That's the point. It doesn't have to be mandated or legislated. Face it, folks. Every creature has a need to worship the, a superior being. Now we're making bad choices about who he is. I got that. But that inclination is implanted within us. Sadly, sometimes we make ourselves to be the object of worship, the humanism that's called. I got all that. Sometimes it's what God has created instead of the creator, uh, naturalism or, or, uh, or pantheism, you know, worshiping rivers and all that kind of stuff. I understand that. But still the fundamental inclination to worship a being greater than us is implanted. They didn't have to be taught. It did, didn't have to be spelled out. This is what they did. Wonderful, wonderful. What are your other thoughts about where Cain might have come up with the idea of rendering an offering to God? And that is an excellent thought for sure. Any other takes? Yes. Well, this is good. Everyone wants to find favor with the king, as Jim says. Absolutely. Again, something in us wants to do this. Greg? Now, Greg just shared something. I'll share it with you. It's great. Greg said, did he by any chance get it uh, uh, by virtue of the fact that God himself offered a sacrifice? Do you remember? There's a sin problem in the garden, and uh, first man and woman try to deal with it themselves. They hide from God. They make an apron of leaves. God intervened and clothed them with the skins of animals, which means he sacrificed an innocent living being on their behalf. You're darn tootin'. I almost said a bad word, didn't I? (laughs) They got the idea from God who took the initiative. He rendered an offering on their behalf. They were saying thank you back to him. And by the way, yes, sir. Well, that's right. Just a natural sort of inclination. Something in him moved him to, to say thank you. 
to the God who provided for him. Absolutely. Also, it's probably something he saw his parents practice. You know, I guarantee, I, I, my guess is Adam and Eve did, did this kind of thing. Brother Chuck? Correct. Now, Brother Chuck raises a great, great question. Maybe God did require this. It's just not recorded. That's really, really possible, but I doubt it. <laughs> but, 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 because we'll, we'll see. All the, what Brother Chuck brought up, though, is really, really uh, good about the nature of the offerings. Why was one accepted? Why not? Why the other not? Which, which we'll get to. Greg, did you have your hand up? Okay, you can, okay, good. So we'll press on. Okay, so an offering is being rendered by Cain. That's what we have so far to the Lord. And here's the nature of it. It's, uh, of the fruit of the ground. So it was a, uh, agricultural offering from the fruit of the ground. And it was bloodless. Okay, it was not an animal. It was agricultural. That was the nature of his offering. Now here's what happens. Verse four. Abel, on his part, also brought, and this is what Brother Chuck said, of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So now I throw it out to you. Why? Why was Abel so, wow, this is going to be good. Uh, Abel's offering accepted, Cain's not. Go ahead, Brother Kelly. Ah. So Kelly is saying this, God had cursed the ground. Cain's offering emanated from the cursed ground. And that could be the basis of God's rejection. That's an excellent thought. Yes, ma'am. A great observation. Of Abel's offering, it says he gave of the firstlings. It does not say that of Cain. The firstlings, and not only that, of the fat portions. Now, I know we're all trying to struggle and cut down fat and all that stuff. But in, in the Bible, the fat is the juiciest, sweetest most precious and valuable part of the animal. As you can see, and Brother Chuck alluded to this, later on when you get to the whole sacrificial system is regulated by Moses, you see the fat offering had a special place, significance. It was wholly set apart unto God. So we get the impression here uh, that Abel's heart was in it. Maybe Cain's was not. Abel gave the best of what he had. Uh, Abel gave something. I mean, Cain gave something. I think you're onto something. Absolutely. Yes. It's not possible. It's actual. Uh, so Greg's deal is, is it possible God's giving us a glimpse into the window of works and grace? Absolutely. Look, folks. Uh, Remember I told you you're going to see the human race narrow down into a godly line, an ungodly line? You're going to see that in chapter 4, though we probably won't get to it today. But what, what uh, Greg is saying, 
kind of an illustration of works and grace really makes sense to me, especially if you read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Would you turn there if you have access to it? And uh, don't worry if you don't, I'll read it to you. Hebrews 11, verse 4, and this is a, uh, plays right into what Greg just said. Hebrews 11, 4. It's a commentary on what we're reading about in Genesis. And by the way, that's a good key to Bible study. Let the Bible comment on itself. So we're going to let Hebrews comment on Genesis. Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he's dead, he still speaks. Abel's offering was rendered from faith, implying Cain's was not. What does it mean offered in faith? Maybe it means out of respect for the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the graciousness of God. It wasn't an offering to win God's favor. It was an offering rendered in light of God's favor. It wasn't meant to appease God. It wasn't meant to show him that he ought to back off and grade on a curve because we're so good. It was an offering rendered not based on the goodness of the offeror, but in response to the goodness of the one to whom the offering was made. It was made by faith, implying Cain made his as a uh, manifestation of his own goodness. I'll get something, and it isn't even the best of what I have, I'll get something and offer it to this deity who's transcendent so as to appease him. In my good works, I can get him to back off. It had nothing to do with faith. Now, what does the Bible say? All have sinned and fallen short of what? It's not that this is a bad thing, but any attempt in our virtue or goodnesses to be in right standing with God falls short. It has to be an offering rendered out of a thankful heart in faith offered in light of what God has already provided. So I don't think it's the nature of the offering so much as the nature of the one offering it. So you see the text said God had regard for Abel and his offering. He first had regard for Abel because what was on his heart was an offering rendered by faith, not to win God's favor, but as a result of God's favor. So Cain was in a different situation entirely. So uh, God has no regard for Cain's offering, and this would be a great opportunity for Cain to sort of get with the program and uh, understand the errors of his ways, but he doesn't. In fact, as you see in the second part of verse 5, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. He got very, very angry and actually became depressed. His countenance fell. Uh, he, he looked different. Anger internal affected even the way he looked externally. Now, he was angry at God, but you will see his anger is manifested towards his brother. 
So here's an interesting principle. If the vertical relationship is not right, then the horizontal relationships won't work very well either. So if one is rightly related to God vertically, you have a far better chance of being rightly related to those around you. It's interesting how this works. Cain was not right vertically, and the manifestation of it was, as you will see, the murder of his own brother. If you're a believer, you know that vertically you're now right with God. You're at peace with God. And if we had time, I could ask you and you'd answer how the way you do relationships has changed as a result of getting the vertical relationship right. Doesn't mean you have it all together. I didn't say that. But things have really changed with the way you conduct yourself in the workplace and school, with family, with friends, with neighbors, and all the rest. Because the vertical relationship impacts on how we do horizontal relationships. So because Cain's vertical relationship had gone awry, what you're about to see manifests itself horizontally in terms of human relationships, and it's not good. And so it says in verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, two questions that are related, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? So for those of us who have prior to this, labored under the apparent misconception that God knows all things. He's omniscient. But those of us who mistakenly have concluded God knows all things, we now find out he doesn't, apparently. Because he's asking for information, is he not, from Cain? Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? So apparently God is not all-knowing. Do you agree with that? Wow, I'm glad you don't. So why is he asking the questions? Yes, sir. For, say again. He's looking for a confession. When God asks questions of people in the Bible, it's never to gather data. He is all-knowing. He's not on a quest for information. It's always an opportunity for the one being questioned to take stock. What's up, Cain? What's going on with you? The desirable response would be, God, I'm in bad shape. I'm just ticked off. I'm jealous. I know I'm trying to cheat you and trying to rob you of offerings. I'm giving you a token kind of a thing, and I want credit for that. I know my brother got it right, but I don't like the fact that he got it right, and I'm considered to be wrong, and I'm getting angry. I want to kill him. That's what God was after. You see what I mean? By the way, some people say the reason why Abel's offering was accepted is that his offering had blood, but Cain's did not. I don't think that's right. I'll tell you why. We have no indication that this is a sin offering. The only offering for sin is the shedding of blood. It's a sin offering. You see this in the book of Leviticus. But a sin offering is not the only offering in the Bible. There were peace offerings, fellowship offerings, and so grain offerings were very much acceptable Later on, you see this. So in this case, it might have been a thanksgiving offering uttered to God, which doesn't require blood. So I don't think that's the explanation. At any rate, uh, Cain rendered an offering of a token kind. wasn't the best he had to offer. He's not offering it in faith. God asks him these questions to put in check the process of sin. And by the way, sin has a process. Do you know that? You, you, you can give life to it. And unless you master it, um, it really takes control of your life. 
it gets more deeply entrenched. That's why the best thing to do for you, for me, the minute God convicts us of sin, you know, kind of cut it off at that point. That's the best idea. Confess it and repent because it grows foul and it festers in our lives, really takes control of every aspect of our of our life. So God is asking these questions. There's no question asked by God in the Bible uh, because he lacks information. So, for instance, can you turn back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 9? Genesis 3, verse 9. That is the first question in the Bible. Genesis 3, verse 9. Remember Genesis, the book of firsts? This is the first question. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? That's the first question in the Bible. Where are you? You don't mean to tell me God didn't know where Adam was, do you? He's hiding amongst the trees that God himself spoke into existence. Where are you going to run? Where are you going to hide in God's world? He knows all the places. You can't get away. It's not that he lost sight of Adam. Where'd you go, Adam? Where you hiding? No, no, no. He asked him that so that Adam would respond to the question, where are you? I'm on the run from you, God. I'm hiding from you. That's what God was after. Take stock, Adam. By the way, the first question in the Bible, don't you find this interesting? Is not what we would imagine it to be. We would imagine the first question to be, who are you? So that's where we live today. Identity crisis. Who are you? The way to resolve the identity crisis question, who are you, is to give the right answer to the first question, where are you? If someone says, where are you? And you say, I am rightly related to the God who gave me life. I'm like a son or daughter to him. In fact, he's adopted me into his family. I know exactly where I am. I'm at peace with God through the blood of the Lamb. I'm in his household. I'm adopted into his family. Once a person gives the right answer to that question, then you have automatically the answer to the next. Who are you? Who are you? I'm a child of the king. I am royalty. I'm a forgiven one. God has a plan and purpose for me. You know who I am? I'm here to represent him on earth. I'm his ambassador. You know who else I am? I'm an heir of blessing. I live here and want to be a good citizen, but my citizenship is not here. I'll tell you who I am. I'm a citizen of heaven. That's who you are. The identity crisis has ended, you see, when you answer the first question. Where are you? So so here's what Adam says in response. Genesis 3, verse 10. He said, well, I heard, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I, I was afraid, you know, because I was naked, so I hid myself. Verse 11, God asked a follow-up question. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? See, God is asking these diagnostic questions to give Adam a chance to answer. Who told you you were naked? You know who did? His conscience. Adam, you needed a preacher in the garden? You don't need me to spell it out. I implanted within you the voice of your conscience. You know you did wrong. You can hide and run all you want to. You can hide from me, but you can't hide from the voice of your conscience. Adam, it's your conscience crying out to you. Your conscience will will beat you to death. Your conscience will make you miserable. Adam, listen to the voice of your conscience. Your conscience told you you were naked. That's what God is after. That kind of confession doesn't happen. So God's questions are never meant... For him to gain information, it's always, always meant to give the, the one being questions an opportunity to take stock and reply. So God's question is, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? And then God says this, verse 7. 
if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up if you obey? If you do the right thing, won't your mood change? (laughs) Won't your countenance be lifted up? Won't you be moved out of depression? So now I want to um, speak to an issue. Um, that is not directly connected, you might say, to the flow of Genesis. But this phrase, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up, provided me in my study an opportunity to think about this and to share some thoughts with you of a rather risky kind. Uh, but I do it because I'm, I'm going to be 65 soon and I've got nothing to lose anymore. <laughs> it's true. You get older, you start, you say, don't worry, who cares? So here's a who cares thing. Um, This person, Cain, is depressed because of sin. There's no doubt about it. So God says, if you stop sinning, won't you stop being depressed? The answer is yes. And based on this kind of thing, there's a good deal of thinking in the body of Christ suggesting any fellow Christian who is depressed has sinned. And therefore, if you're ministering to a depressed fellow Christian, you want to help them identify their sin area and get them to stop doing it. And therefore, they won't be depressed. That's true, but it's not the whole truth. Because Psalm 139 says we are fearfully and wonderfully made, meaning we're not that simple. It's not always like this. So sometimes a Christian who's depressed is depressed for other for reasons other than sin. Now, you might say, but isn't sin the result of all the bad things we struggle with today? The answer is yes. Yeah, the sin committed by Adam and Eve, our parents, changed everything. The paradise environment of the Garden of Eden has been tainted and corrupted. Nothing works the way it was meant to. I got that. So the distant cause of all things is sin, but the immediate cause is not always sin. So the immediate cause of depression and anxiety that someone may be experiencing may be sin, but not necessarily. So how do you deal with that person? You rule out sin, first of all. Let's find out. Is there sin in your life? What's going on? Is there a pattern of misbehavior that you need to repent of? For sure. I got that. But if that's ruled out, You don't keep on that person. You look to other areas because we're multifactorial. Folks, it could be physiological. It could be organic. It could be chemical. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. The brain is an organ. Why is it that we Christians receive compassion, courtesy, and care when we're suffering organic impairment in any bodily organ except the brain? If it's a liver, if it's a spleen, if it's a heart, we pray, we hug, we rally. But if it's an emotional disorder stemming from an impairment in the brain, which is an organ, we say, repent, sinner. Could you please tell me why we do that? And then what we do is we heap on the depressed person guilt, which leads a lot of depressed people to kill themselves. If you can't come out of the closet, and speak about your mood disorder without a Christian accusing you of being on the outs with God, 
well, then there's nowhere else to go except dying. Uh, so one time I was preaching at a conference of 1,000 pastors. I was asked to come and speak to struggles in the ministry to help a 1,000 pastors, old, young, be human. Just people talk about struggles in the, in the ministry. Give them permission for having struggles, being real and all the rest. Talk about helps and hopes in Christ. I did. When I finished, I sat down and the person who spoke after me was an evangelist from another state. This whole thing was in another state, so don't try to identify the players. You won't succeed. And this person um, who came up after me without mentioning me or what I said in particular said to these 1,000 pastors, Brethren, all you need is Jesus. All you have to do is walk with him. There's no such thing as burnout when you walk with him. There's no such thing as depression when you walk with him. There's no such thing as anxiety when you walk with him. And I saw the countenances of a thousand pastors go down. Because the permission they had to be real and get help and deal with their maladies was now taken away by this evangelist. A few months later, I heard that his daughter, he had a daughter, killed herself. I did not feel vindicated. I felt crushed. It's a tragedy. But I thought to myself, if that's your dad, and your dad is not allowing for you, to be a Christ-centered, devoted follower in love with the Lord and still struggling. And who are you going to talk to? There's no one to talk to. You have to kill yourself. And she did. I was a missionary in Germany. And uh, one of the fellows I had the privilege of leading to the Lord was built like uh, one of these weightlifters. I mean, just an animal. And good-looking guy, popular with the gals, and grew like crazy spiritually. We'd do quiet times. We'd memorize scripture. We'd share our faith. He was living according to personal purity. Just all the stuff that you want to see in a growing disciple of the Lord. I got orders away from that installation. And then a couple years went by, and I tried to make contact with this guy to see what's going on. And uh, I couldn't. He wouldn't answer. He wouldn't respond. I didn't know where he went. So I did some investigation, and some people who knew him told me, oh, I guess you didn't hear. Hear what? Uh, his name is Greg. Greg has fallen apart. You would not recognize him, they said, if you saw him today. He's lost weight. Uh, he looks terrible. He's become sort of like a, uh, a loner. He's isolated. He doesn't socialize with anyone. He doesn't come to church anymore, nothing like that. So I found out what happened. Uh, He's better today, by the way. Um, Things began to happen. He began to go into real deterioration. And well-intentioned Christians came up to him and did diagnostic stuff like, Greg, let me, you must be sinning. Because if you're right with Jesus, this doesn't happen. That's like Job's counselors. You know what I mean? There must be something in you, otherwise this wouldn't be happening. He said, let me help you find out. What's going on? Is it a sexual deal? Is it a this or a that? No, 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 it's none of that. None of that. 
You gotta do more Bible study, you gotta memorize more scripture, you gotta pray more, you know what, you know, what's up? None of these things. All these things made him feel even worse. Everyone was implying it's something in you, there's something wrong with you, it's your fault. Because if you're walking with Jesus, life's a bowl of cherries, this stuff doesn't happen. Well then finally a non-Christian, of all people, a non-Christian came up to him and said, Greg, when was the last time you had a good physical exam? Brilliant. A physical exam. Well, Greg doesn't want anything to do with it. He's so depressed now, he's not going to... Well, the non-Christian friend pretty much forced him into it, drove him to a doctor, got a thorough physical exam. Turns out he had a blood sugar deal. It was hypoglycemia. Is that a blood sugar deal, doc? Something like that? So, so and what that could do, please tell me if I'm wrong, it affects a lot of things, including your moods. Is that correct? So I'll tell you what the physician did. Dietary adjustment, some medication. It was a long haul for recovery. It wasn't, you know, right away. But he was on the road to recovery. People say if you trust Jesus, you don't have these things. I agree with that. But you have to trust Jesus by accepting the way he designed us. He made us fearfully and wonderfully made. We're made up of organs for crying out loud. One thing affects the other. And so he was moved out of depression and anxiety, isolation and all the rest by a proper diagnosis. It wasn't spiritual. It was physiological. It was physical. So why do I share all this? Because we're shooting our wounded. That's why I share this. Because anything is acceptable to talk about in the church except your emotional struggle. Anything. So we go underground. And sometimes it leads to suicide. There's no other way. I had a friend who was being interned by a fine pastor in another state years ago. The pastor got really, really busy doing ministry all over the place, thus neglected his family, including his wife. No time with her. No nothing. She had an unhealthy genetic inheritance of emotional difficulties from her family. I mean, we inherited our parents, grandparents' physical characteristics, but also sometimes their constitutional characteristics too, their emotional characteristics. But this lady was sensitive, needy, and all the rest. Husband not meeting the needs. What's she going to do? She can't go to a counselor because she's the pastor's wife. She's got to get it together. So the only out was for her to kill herself. He came home one day and found her hanging. She killed herself. So why am I bringing this up? (laughs) Because we're killing people, our own, instead of embracing them just the way we would someone with cancer, someone with this, someone with that. We're not jumping to conclusions that it's unrepented of sin that's causing the depression. It surely could. I was a counselor in a military health clinic. Uh, A guy comes in who looked terrible, another officer, looked terrible, showed all the nonverbals of depression. He goes into an office, sees another counselor. He comes out 45 minutes later. Good night. There's a bounce in his step. His cold countenance changed. I think it's miraculous. So I went in to see the counselor. I said, man, what, is, what did you do? That was marvelous. What did you say? He said, well, uh, the guy is sleeping with the ne- his next-door neighbor. He's a married guy. And he's, he's had a long-term sexual relationship with the next-door neighbor. She's also married. He's been feeling really bad, really guilty about it. I helped him to see, hey, two consenting adults. As long as, you know, you're not imposing yourself on another. And uh, then I told him, you know, you look to me. He was a social worker, the other guy. You're a social worker. You're always giving yourself to others. 
you know, it's about time that you meet your own needs. You're just getting your own needs met. It's legitimate, two consenting adults. So the guy who was laden with guilt, justifiable guilt, a blessing of God to cause him to take stock and maybe repent, the counselor resolved his guilt wrongly by telling him no basis for it. That made him feel good. So I know some depression and anxiety for sure is a result of unconfessed sin. I got it. Don't misunderstand. But not all. We have to be really, really careful. Now, why do I bring this up? Um, if you don't get this right, then the next time you're a struggling Christian, struggling with a mood disorder, you're going to say something you mean well, but you're going to say something that makes it really worse. You're going to say, you've got to, I'm praying for you that you would just get right with God. You're going, to, you're, you're going to go after that person. That person already feels worthless, already feels condemned, and you're going to accentuate that like crazy. A better thing to do is slow down, realize we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Have, and I'm use this expression. A lot of things are multifactorial. A lot of diagnoses are multifactorial. You can't simplify things and say all depression is due to sin. Some is. I got it. Not all, because there's multiple factors. This organ is unbelievable, this brain. Unbelievable. And it's, it's, you know, one part of the brain sends a message to the other like this. Uh, Stuart is raising his left arm. Raise the left arm. This, this sends messages to the whatever, the other parts of your body to do that. Everything comes from here. This is the command center. So how do the messages go? Liquids. Chemicals. What if the chemicals get imbalanced or out of whack? It affects a lot of stuff, including moods. That's not sin. That's chemical imbalance. So how do I know about this stuff? I struggle with depression. That's why I know. I inherited it. Parents, grandparents, mood disorders. In the old days, I've had ants institutionalized their entire life. I come from a really good family. My family is the most giving, loving, generous. But every one of us suffer from mood disorders. We knew of panic attacks before it was named panic attacks. We know about depression and anxiety. My sisters, my mother, me. Have I sinned? Of course. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Am I in sin? No. I dare you to find sin. A pattern of sin. Don't misunderstand. Bad attitudes? For sure. (laughs) I got that. Come to my house. I'm not into pornography. I don't drink. I don't drug. I've never cheated on my wife. I have the capacity to. I'm a human. I just, by God's grace, never have. I don't do anything. I don't have skeletons in the closet. Why? Am I so good? I'm not so good. I have to make sure when I plead for God to God for help, I can do so out of the integrity of my heart. So that's why sin is like a bad thing for me. So what is depression for me? I don't know. It just comes and goes. I have no idea. I wish I knew the trigger. It's never a known trigger. Some people get depressed when there's a loss. I understand that. Or an illness or something like that. That doesn't happen with me. It could just happen like a black cloud. How does it go away? I don't know. 
It goes just as quickly as it came. What could I tell you? Some people have episodes of depression. Others have low-grade depression always. That's me. Dysthymia, they call it. Low-grade depression. And every once in a while, it leads to a real dip, a valley of depression. I used to pray, oh, God, free me. Take this from me. I no longer do it. Why? I need it. Need it? Yeah. What does it do? You can't tell me anything that you're struggling with that I can't relate to. And I am not at all prone to preach at you when we talk privately. I am not likely to give you some simplistic, well, God uses all things for the good. Be warmed and be filled. I'm much more likely to say, yeah, I can understand. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, I understand. Well, how do you get that from school? No, you don't get that. You get that from the same struggle. Corinthians, we are able to comfort those who are similarly afflicted with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted in Christ. So that's one reason I no longer ask God to take it away. Second, it drives me into the word. It drives me. To teach? Not exactly. I wish I had that pure motive. To survive. It drives me into the word. I have to hear from the divine counselor. I need help. And if he happens to give me something that's helpful, then maybe it's helpful to others. So the teaching is the byproduct. But I don't study to teach. I study to survive. Um, I could have anxiety attacks that shake my whole body, make everything shake, jitter, boom, boom, everything. What? Sometimes I actually laugh in it. I mean it because there's nothing going on. That's wrong. Everything's cool. What am I lacking? Not a thing. How does it come? I don't have a clue. What do I do about it? I wait it out. I ride it out. I just wait. I say, God, apparently you're making good use of this. Otherwise, you would deliver me from it. I have absolute trust and conviction that God can pronounce deliverance upon me in an instant. But he's chosen not to. Why? It keeps me in check. You know how arrogant I am? Can you imagine how much more I would be? <laughs> I mean, I think about this. I think, oh, God, I'd have such a critical nature. Uh, I'd be such a negative, such a downer. You know, a lot of times teaching pastors, you've got to be careful. They think they know more than others. You've got to be real careful teaching just that role. For me, it's, oh, God, are you sure you know what you're doing in giving me this position? See, so the depression and the anxiety keeps me in check. I didn't say I don't try to deal with it. I've gone for counseling. I've tried medication and all the rest. I'm managing. I'm going to make it. And one day I'm going to be entirely free. I have thought about suicide and made two suicidal attempts years ago. I'm not prone to do it now. Why not? Because I'm redeemed by the blood of the lamb and suicide is really murder. It's a 180 degree murder. Since I don't own myself, I'm owned by another. If I take the life I think I have, I, I don't own me. He owns me. So I'm not prone to do that, although I think about it. I think a lot in the midst of the darkness. Oh, God, I wish it would. I wish it would end. So uh, a friend told me, Stuart, you should be very careful about sharing those things because it could be used against you. It could. 
but I'm, I told you I'm getting older. I don't care anymore. <laughs> I don't care. I don't need a job. I'm not in it for the job. And I'm not trying to be a wise guy. I'm trying to say, folks, we've got to be a safe house for people struggling on all levels. And coming to know Christ gives immediate, immediate justification, a legal pronouncement, just as if we had not sinned. And coming to know Christ gives us a capacity to, to a power to keep from being mastered by sin like never before. And coming to know Christ one day actually leads to the total eradica- eradication of sin in our members. But coming to know Christ while still we remain in this world does not remove us, grant us immunity from the throes of life. We still live in a a marvelous body that God has given us, but it's subject to disease and sickness in all of its organs. We're subject to environmental things. We're subject to relational things. A godly Christian is not a Christian who's free from depression and anxiety in these things. A godly Christian is someone who clings to Christ through depression and anxiety. A godly Christian is someone who, like Jacob in Genesis 32, says, Oh God, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's a godly Christian. A godly Christian is a dependent person, not a person who stands up in front of people acting like he's got it together. Nobody has it together. We are held together by the Lord Jesus Christ. He saved us not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the throes of life. This is a safe church. This is a great church. We could excel even more in being a safe atmosphere for those who, with shame, have to go seek help for emotional impairment. Why is physical impairment okay? Put it on the prayer list. What about emotional impairment? I was a pastor of a church one time, and we went, sent my team to a country um, to help the missionaries and their families get a break. We just went essentially to babysit, watch their kids lead worship so that the in-country missionary staff could get a break. Spoke to one of the ladies who told me 40% of the American in-country missionaries were uh, taking antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication. 40% of the missionary staff. She told me, you're the first person I ever told. Good godly, ordained, commissioned people. So concerned about the lost, so sensitive that their sensitive nature lent itself for emotional ups and downs. That's how sensitive people are. It made them great missionaries, the sensitivity, and it made them vulnerable to chemical things leading to depression and imbalance. Well, we just moved into, we can't do what you do, wonderful missionaries, but we can keep you in the mission field. So we moved into that mode. We'll minister to the missionaries. Our church is like that, can be more like that. (laughs) Not Job's counselors. Job, if you just get it together, everything will be fine. And if you read Job, you find out the ones God was angry with was not Job, it was his counselors. Don't be a counselor like that. Don't do that. Okay, look, we went over uh, four minutes, but it's nothing to be depressed about. It's just four, <laughs> it's just four minutes. Uh, God bless you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Lord willing.
We'll press on in chapter 4 next week, and you're permitted to read on ahead if you would like in that chapter. See you next time.